Welcome to Intelligent Edge Yoga, yoga conversations for smart, compassionate practice with Catherine Ann Flynn. I'm Catherine. Depending on how long you've been teaching and involved in the yoga community, and maybe this happens in other communities as well, but it definitely happens in the yoga community. People will end up adding you as Facebook friends and you'll look at your mutual friends list and sure enough, there's several or many yogis that you mutually know. So you confirm their request because story checks out. And sometimes it gets so surreal that you actually meet the person and can't quite recall if you've met before or not because you have this digital impression of that person. This happens to me fairly frequently, but today's episode was inspired by someone I'm connected to in that surreal way, but we haven't actually met before. The studio owner posted about some frustration with yoga voice. Now she commented in her post about both the quality of the yoga voice, as well as the content And we'll talk a little bit about the difference, but today I'm going to focus more on the voice itself. What makes a yoga voice? What makes a voice? And why might we have a phenomenon of yoga voice? So yoga voice. Yoga voice happens for a number of reasons, but what is yoga voice? Yoga voice is that maybe high light, ethereal sounding voice that, that sometimes teachers put on. And so it sounds like they're not actually in the room with you. They are teaching from a cloud above the room with small baby animals and angels present. You may have noticed that there was a breathiness to the voice and that the breathing and the speaking were quite blurred together rather than inhalations happening and then speech issuing forth. So let's talk about what makes a voice. When we consider the ways in which each of us are unique, you might initially think of your personal appearance and the flavor of yoga that you practice and teach, but your voice is actually as unique as your fingerprints. Although some people might sound quite a bit alike, my mother, my sister, and I are sometimes indistinguishable on the phone. No two voices are actually exactly alike. We each have a unique voice because so many factors work together to produce our voices. Your voice starts down in your lungs where air is exhaled to create an air stream in the trachea and across the larynx, which is often called the voice box. Stretched horizontally across your larynx are vocal folds, which are sometimes also referred to as cords. As air passes over them, The vocal cords vibrate very quickly to produce sounds. The higher the rate of vibration or frequency, the higher the pitch will be. The 
pitch of your voice is largely determined by the length and tension of your vocal cords. By themselves, vocal cords just produce a buzzing sound. The parts of your body between the vocal cords and the outside world, like your throat, nose, mouth, lips, act as a resonating chamber to turn those buzzing sounds into your voice. Given that individuality is the rule in anatomy, you can see why there is a true uniqueness to human voices. We change our voice depending to whom we are speaking. A study from the University of Sterling has found that men and women generally speak with higher pitched voices to interviewers they think are in high social status. However, they also found that people who thought themselves uh, to be dominant were less likely to vary their pitch and generally spoke in a lower pitch when talking to someone of social status. People who considered themselves to be prestigious talked in a measured way, neither increasing nor decreasing the volume of their voice. Dominance and prestige are two ways to acquire high social status. So dominance refers more to assertiveness, taking power by force and coercion, while prestige is given freely due to one's skills and merits. Men and women might speak with higher pitched voices toward high status people because a low pitched voice sounds dominant, while a high pitched voice sounds more submissive. So if you need something from that person and feel that they are above you, perhaps you don't want them to feel like you're trying to threaten or coerce them when your social standing would not warrant it. Using a high-pitched voice could signal that you're not a threat and you're willing to avoid confrontations. Some yoga teacher trainings will instruct their participants in what to cue for different postures, exercises, and activities. They might give prescriptive cues. For example, here is how you teach warrior two. These are the cues you use every time. Or they might give methods. Here is a general principle to apply to the teaching of moving bodies. Maybe some teacher trainer is giving vocal lessons, but I'm yet to hear of it. Most of us assume tone of voice and pitch to be personal expressions that are beyond the scope of yoga teacher training feedback. Now, I do want to talk about how we can work with the tone of our voice and prepare for our classes so that the sound is better. But I have to say that I've grown up in a household where there is a strong familiarity with warming up the voice. My mother is a music teacher and singer. And so there were music lessons going on in my house all the time, even though singing was never my forte. I still so clearly can recall the hundreds of young people who came through our house and had to sing me, me, ma, mo, mu, bum, ba. Me, me, ma, mo, mu, ba, ba, me, any, you get the point. 
I heard these vocal warm-ups and some of them I will not torture your ears with, but this is often the background noise to my memories of homework. We assume that singing has a certain amount of talent. And I think there've probably been a lot of cultural phenomena like The Voice and American Idol that has have made us think that there is little education and method behind the scenes. You're just born with a voice and then you make it onto television and you become famous. I've heard my mother say to people that regardless of what they believe to be the quality of their voice, she can help them feel confident and comfortable singing because there are very real techniques for singing well. Same goes for speaking well. But we're going to cycle back to that in a minute because first I want to talk about What happens when we do not learn something explicitly, when we are not taught specifically? Since most of us may not be taught what a yoga voice is, a lot of what we do in the teaching of yoga is stylistic. So we engage in social learning. Social learning theory posits that people learn from one another via observation imitation, and modeling rather than through explicit instruction. So if someone's yoga teacher speaks a certain way, they may imitate that teacher's voice. When I first moved to my city, Ottawa, five years ago, I went around and I tried all the studios and I landed at this one studio and I went to a class with a teacher who I have no idea who she is, but during her class, frequently throughout it, she would say, inhale, exhale. And I have to admit it bothered me. And so I thought I would not go back to her class, but I had a month pass. I would go to other classes. I went to the teacher trainer's class and as I was practicing, this person said multiple times, inhale, exhale. I doubt that that was included in her manual, but in a badge of loyalty, of imitation is the highest form of flattery. Clearly her students were imitating her. We may choose to imitate someone because they have a high social status or success that we would like to achieve. Now, in the yoga world, that may be simply any teaching job, but it could be a perception of that person has success that we would like to have teaching at a specific studio in certain time slots, perhaps with certain social media followings. And so what becomes of interest is a social psychology term called information cascades. In a perfect world, we would have all the information we need to make informed choices. 
But this, of course, cannot always be the case. Since we can't have all the information, what we do is we look for signs and signals of the thing's utility and value. For example, if you can't know a restaurant is good until you try it, you look online for reviews. But some signals are less specifically locatable than that. If a yoga teacher seems popular in person and online, we may seek to imitate them because their popularity affirms their methods and thus their methods seem to affirm their popularity. In an information cascade, we learn by observing the actions of others. When we see others clamoring to get something, be somewhere, be with someone, we take it as a signal of quality and thus join in in what becomes herd behavior. The phenomenon is less about the content and more about our inclination to adopt the opinions and behaviors of people around us. This speaks to why we may want to do a specific training or own a specific kind of yoga pant or t-shirt. Something that's always made me smile about my yoga community is that I live in a pretty conservative city. We've got lots of public servants. Everyone airs toward the pragmatic side. And you go to yoga classes and this is where people bust out in their fashion sense. You often see lots of very colorful and patterned leggings. Whereas when I go home to Toronto, I go into a couple of my favorite studios and it's, they're almost like the little uh, angel and devil on your shoulder. There's one studio I go to where everyone's wearing tones of white and gray. And then I go to another studio where everyone is wearing black to the extent that it looks like I've stumbled into a photo shoot. There are many documented reasons as to why we do this. Yes, some of it is herd behavior, but there's a lot about uniform and a sense of belonging and emulation for approval, similar to modulating your voice uh, pitch when you're talking with someone who holds a position of authority. In regard to voice, I think we've all heard teachers phrase things in particular ways that really speak to us. We love a cue and it really lands well. We love a particular theme and some of the language they use around that theme seems lovely to us and we might jot down some notes. I would love to tell you that I believe that authenticity shines through in all things, but the truth of my feeling is that teaching public yoga classes is a very unique skill set. And I've known a lot of people in my career who have excellent skills at delivering yoga classes. In other fields uh, of interpersonal interaction, they have fewer skills, but they're very good in the classroom setting. And I think similar to any other kind of art, there is a borrowing that happens. I think sometimes it's blatant and I don't think it's necessarily obvious to students. And I'm not sure that it's a problem. I think the teacher who initially said the thing 
and then had it replicated because someone attended their class and then moved that line over to their other class. I think that that person might have some strong attachment to those are my words. This is my technique. And I think there's space for that when you've published something or written something or it's something from a training. I think a few things are going on here. First of all, we've all heard of and seen some of the ephemeral qualities of yoga get played out in intellectual property court. So I'm thinking of Bikram Chowdhury's attempt to copyright his 26 posture sequence. It didn't happen. And the teaching of specific concepts, the use of certain words, it's like yoga postures. They're not yours. Even if you link them in a particular way, they are still just symbols that you are working to communicate and convey particular concepts of philosophy and movement. As much as we may try to say, you know, this is Catherine Flynn's trademark yoga concept, we are all just continuing to explore and repackage similar content that does not belong to us and is intended to share. Even when we set something down in print, we set it down so that we can share it. I'm saying this to give encouragement and comfort to us as producers. When we cling to the I, me, mine story, we're policing the boundaries because we don't necessarily feel respected and we're clinging to our work out of a fear that we will not be appropriately compensated for it or that there is a scarcity of work and that if someone else impersonates us well, they may replace us. I think that's some of the underlying fear. Some of this fear arises because of the quantity of people trying to teach yoga. And so because it's difficult to get your footing as a yoga teacher, we perceive other people to be the problem. And sometimes, certainly, they are a challenge. But I firmly believe that if you work intelligently in a long game approach to teaching yoga, most people who really do want to do it can figure out ways to make teaching yoga at least a part of their long-term income and job focus. But in terms of being borrowed, comfort yourself with the awareness that if someone is borrowing from you without credit, it is because they may be struggling to create their own content. That may not be sufficient skillfulness or attention to methods and research that they may not last in the field. Now you as a practitioner, you and I as practitioners, if we are borrowing things without honoring where they came from, this is a crude karma, likely. I'm not the karma police, so I can't say yay or nay, but I feel that I probably accrue karma if I borrow something without honoring where it came from. 
And again, sometimes maybe this comes out of fear that if we honor our teachers or we honor our peers for their wonderful words and ideas, that maybe we will lose students and they will go find them. And that should be okay. We should be confident and comfortable referring out, but it's not a referral. You are diminishing your distress by worrying about whether you're accruing karma or not by honoring your teachers, if those are things that you worry about. And you're also demonstrating a commitment to community and to the exchange of ideas. And these are really lovely things to share with your community and with your students. In terms of developing my own voice as a teacher, the stronger my own voice has become, the absolutely more enthusiastic I have grown about celebrating other voices. I'll admit that I am blessed to have what I am told is a good voice. At the same time, like any other aspect of my teaching, how to speak well and how to speak clearly, these are things that I hone all the time. I once said to a class, could you bring a level of curiosity to this sun salutation? Think of how many sun salutations I have taught in my teaching career. And I try to say each one as if it's fresh. No one wants to hear a tired, inspirational voice. So I continue to hone how I say things because it matters to the experience of the people in the room. But in terms of actual yoga voice... I think we need to encourage people to feel confident that your voice is excellent. If you want your voice to be spiritual, it's a spiritual voice without making it sound breathier. If you want to be inspirational, you can have an inspirational voice with a regular voice. I think sometimes we feel that we need to go outside ourselves to be more of the quality that we want to convey. The quotation from Oscar Wilde that's in my teacher's signature comes to mind. Be yourself, everyone else is taken. And I know that depending on your confidence level, sometimes we think to ourselves, who am I? You know, Now I'm quoting Marianne Williamson. Who am I to be fabulous, talented, gifted, but truly we don't need more examples of people living exceptional lives in exceptional remote circumstances. We need spiritual and wellness leaders who are living typical average lives because your typical average students need to know that living with more spaciousness and wellness and kindness is possible. It's not something that they have to reserve for retreat weeks in Costa Rica. So consider this your permission for even more of your appreciated you-ness. Now, before I go on to conclude with ways and warm-ups for sounding your best you before you go into teach, 
I'd like to talk about metaphor in teaching. I think this is another part of yoga voice that sometimes gets criticized from people who do not appreciate the use of metaphor. I don't use a lot of metaphor when I teach. It's not a large part of my method. It's not absent. It's just not particularly present. And what do I mean by that? I mean, you know, the idea of being rooted like a tree with branches waving in the breeze. That very vivid description-based cueing, I think it really appeals to a lot of creative people and uh, a lot of Vata people, a lot of high Vata people. So those more air and space-based people. And guess what? It speaks to Vata students. There are lots of people out there who really love visuals in their practice. I use a lot of metaphors, but perhaps in a less uh, be the tree type way. But if you have a student saying, oh, that doesn't speak to me, well, that's okay. Not every cue is for you, just as not every posture is for you. We do our best to facilitate a practice that's going to speak to the average person in the room, but not every moment can be a 100% community involved moment. And this is the gift of being yourself. Again, my teacher Mona would say, you're not the teacher for everyone. They wouldn't fit in the room. And so let the highly descriptive Vada teachers teach their tree branch waving classes. There are people who love that. And for the grumpy Pitta people who just want to hear about biomechanics or don't want to hear from you at all and just want you to plow them through an efficient practice, there are lots of teachers available for that as well. This is why I integrate Ayurveda when I talk about teaching and practice methods, because to me, Ayurveda gives us permission to be ourselves. So teachers, if metaphor works for you, you own it. All the tree branches, elephant trunk waving, butterfly floating, whatever it is you bring to it, you keep bringing it. So speaking of the grumpy voices, there is a trend in the yoga community, in social media, Carol Horton and I touched on it briefly in our conversation, although we didn't talk about it specifically in this way. And that is the angry, authoritative science and anatomy voice. I talk about this a little bit in an article that I wrote for Elena Brower's teach.yoga website a few years back, and it was about updating our yoga information. And I, I understand that when you get taught some science or anatomy that you then go on to refine your understanding of and offer new, perhaps more informed yoga, sometimes there's this pressure or anger at what you had previously learned. All you can do is remind yourself that you did the best with the information you had at the time. Practice self-compassion, practice compassion for your teachers. Remember that we're all in process and progress. And yet we have to practice and teach along the way. But what's emerging is this 
really angry, I've got all the facts and other people don't series of voices in the yoga community. And I just want to raise a little red flag because if you listen to anyone who is rich in research, uh, in research science, they will tell you what they don't know. They will tell you, you know, these things still remain a mystery. I was listening to a conversation with a clinical anatomist the other day, and he was talking about how at certain levels of elite performance, we actually don't understand how they can perform at those levels without intra-abdominal pressure basically entirely erupting their body. So even though that's a term that some people are familiar with, we also don't know everything about it. I think in this particular field, it happens a little more frequently because of the pressure to position ourselves as authorities because we have trainings and workshops to package and hopefully enroll people in. There's longstanding research, and I've linked to it from the show notes, that shows that critics are perceived as being more intelligent when they are negative than when they are positive. So we might tap into this unconsciously and be more negative when we are offering a critique of previous methods because we're trying to position ourselves as the more knowledgeable, intelligent teachers. The same research also demonstrates that if we're feeling insecure in our position, we will be more likely to be critical. Super fascinating stuff. So this very, very cool research shows that the truly confident can afford to be kind. I was recently chatting with another teacher and we were talking about an approach to teaching posture clinic that's a little outmoded and outdated, but I still keep it in my manual, just a little section on it. And that's because it's it's pretty cursory, it's pretty, uh, it's pretty accessible, which means that for someone who is really overwhelmed by anatomy and physiology, they have this way in. So I think that's really cool. But then what I do when I teach is I say, here's how things have historically been done in the yoga world. Here's how we've often conceptualized this or that, or here's how I used to conceptualize this or that. Here's why it was useful. Here are its opportunities and here are its limitations. This is what we've started to look at. This is what I've started to get really passionate about. Here's how I've evolved. You need to try it on and work through it. And hopefully coming at it from multiple perspectives will give you a more holistic understanding. Now, to conclude with some of the more practical, regardless of the voice uh, quality that you're bringing to class, I mentioned at the beginning the way in which our voice is actually produced. The best way to have a understandable, clear, nice sounding yoga voice is to reduce tension through the musculature of your breathing apparatus, neck and throat. 
for your upper back, shoulders, neck, etc. I would consider going through some mobilizing movements and a few stretches before you walk in to teach. Give yourself a couple of minutes on your own, couple of breaths, few little stretches. One of the stretches that you can do specifically for your voice is yawning. Give yourself a good And when I've done that just now, I've really stretched my mouth, similar to Simhasana or lion's breath. You could also do lion's breath. Take a big breath in. And as you exhale, stick out your tongue, look at the ceiling, stretch your lips and ha. Do that a few times. It will improve the sound of your voice. I already feel a little more spacious in my face, and that's nice. Another thing you can do, I've linked from a super helpful little video that is in the show notes for you, and it's all on exercises and warm-ups for your voice. I've actually linked to two. One is just hysterical, (laughs) and I wanted to share it with you. And the second one is more helpful. And this lovely young man introduces us to a vocal warm-up called grounding, which is where you stand with, uh, with feet even. And it sounds a little silly, but it really is very effective. And if you search the internet for it, apparently drama classes all over the globe are doing this. And so here it is. called grounding, you stand, you're going to ah, and while you ah, you're going to lift and lower your heels to essentially end up bouncing the voice. So it sounds like ah, ah, do I sound richer on the other side of that activity? I might be forcing the richness. We also sound more constricted when we're nervous because we are not breathing low and wide. We're breathing high and lifted. So before you speak, take long breaths in and then speak on the exhalation. The list of reasons to limit your demonstrating in your yoga classes is longer than I have time to list today, but this is another reason that demonstrating through active sequences is really challenging for the sound of your voice. If you are doing something athletic, you switch to a pant breath. If you switch to a pant breath, that low, wide breath that you need to have a rich sounding voice is going to be incredibly difficult to have, especially if you're trying to speak at the same time that you're getting it, as well as holding a plank position. So consider reducing the quantity of your demonstrating to increase the quality of your voice. Personally, I think that will lead to a more atmospheric a pleasant experience for your students. 
Now, if there's anything I've missed today that you feel should be shared, make sure you send me a note. You can easily find me all over the internet at Intelligent Edge Yoga on Instagram, Facebook, and my website, www.intelligentedge.yoga. If you want to learn more about queuing from me, I'll be in Toronto with a queuing workshop this December. And then of course, going back to the Toronto Yoga Conference in the spring. But you can also watch my website and my newsletter for upcoming workshops. In the event that you live further afield and you'd like to hear me speak about this in person, I would love an invite. Harvey and I can travel. We'd love to come see you. So again, shoot me a message. Until next time, though, namaste for now, yogis. Mm-hmm.